Welcome to the regular podcast from Editorial Intelligence, the media analysis and networking business. You can see all our broadcast interviews on our EITV channel on YouTube and editorialintelligence.com. Um, good morning, ladies and gentlemen. My name is Peter Riddle. I'm director of the Institute for Government. And I'd like to welcome you to our um, building um, today. I'm delighted to welcome you here for a number of reasons. One is um, our collaboration uh, with editorial intelligence, which we value. Um, we intend to continue that under my directorship, as under my predecessor, Andrew Adonis, working with Julia and co. And we very strongly want to carry that on um, at events like this and other events. Um, secondly, the theme on manufacturing ties in very much with some work the Institute itself is doing. Um, we're very conscious of, um, partly through our own um, chairman and principal funder, uh, Lord Sainsbury, who's of course very committed to a lot of the, the themes which are coming up today. But also, we ourselves are participating in the Growth Commission with the LSE, a project um, which is um, largely funded by the ECRC, um, to look at the conditions um, for producing stronger growth. So it chimes in very closely with a lot of themes will come up today. Um, this commission, um, very high-powered, people like John Brown, Richard Lambert, etc., as a Nobel Prize winner on it. Um, that's was launched here a couple of months ago with Larry Summers over from the States and Steve Nicholl from the OBR, and um, kind of the events alternate between here and the LSE, and that'll be um, developing steam during the course of this year. So this is very parallel to what you're doing today. So unfortunately, I can't stay because I've got um, meetings over at Westminster and um, upstairs for the rest of the morning. But I hope you have an extremely good conference here. I hope you find the facilities very good. Um, there are lots of for lose, etc. They're on the inside stairs far there. They, they, um, our, our team who look after you for lunch and everything are excellent. And I, I hope you have a very good day. I'd just like to hand over now to um, David. Okay. Um, I'd like to introduce uh, the first session and um, the panellists, uh, which I'll go from left to right. Uh, we've got Roman Manthe, uh, a supply chain director at Coca-Cola Enterprises which is the leading Western distributor of the soft drink. Uh, then Nigel Whitehead, uh, a group managing director at defence giant BAE Systems, uh, with responsibility for six billion of revenues. Um, Sally Leonard, uh, a jewellery designer and entrepreneur who has worked with the likes of De Beers and Coco de Mer. She is also a creative business consultant at Centre. And Professor Mohan Sodhi, a distinguished examin uh, academic who counts a professorship at Cass Business School among his many roles. He is also executive director of the Manufacturing Institute at the Indian School of Business. Okay, so we're going to start with some uh, introductory <coughs> remarks, and I think we'll start with you, Ben. Many thanks, David, actually. So good morning. Um, it's an absolute pleasure, actually, to be here this morning and sitting on this panel. I think some of you might ask yourself, what is a soft drinks company doing on this panel? And for those who don't know, actually, the food and drink sector is the biggest manufacturing industry in the UK, accounting for 15% of the total output. So it's certainly one of the core engines of UK PLC. And CCE, meaning Coca-Cola Enterprise, has a long history and a rich history in GB. We are producing more than 95% of products which we sell in GB actually are manufactured in our six manufacturing sites across GB. And we're employing actually 4,500 highly skilled employees across 20 sites. 
So um, all in all, we are, have a, a large economic fo footprint. So for every job we create, there are six additional jobs created across our supply chain. So last year we invested 50 million pounds into our supply chain and specifically in our manufacturing base. And these investments are focused around productivity and competitiveness. But more importantly, and that's a theme which occurred over the last years more and more, um, we're investing this into reducing our environmental impact. And that's very important to us. So we're absolutely committed to reduce our carbon footprint and water usage and be a leader and the leader in sustainable packaging. And that's very, very close to our heart. You can see actually with the Deliver for Today and Inspire for Tomorrow um, leaflet, which is on your seats, how committed we are towards our 2020 commitments. Additionally, we're using actually the inspiration and excitement of the Olympics to further catalyze our investments. And what specific investments are we taking during the Olympics and in preparation for the Olympics? So we're investing into technologies such as the Continuum Recycling Joint Venture up in Lincolnshire. We are actually using and utilizing the Voltaic Warehouse, which is a zero-carbon warehouse. And in addition to that, that's a first off for the Coke system. We've invested into biogas vehicles, which will deliver the Olympic products to the park. And importantly, this is not a one-off investment. These will be kept as legacies, ongoing legacies after the Olympics. And that's a key element of what we're doing, is providing sustainability and a legacy for the long term. Now, innovation is also helping us actually to meet our bold goal in packaging. So really to create the greenest packaging um, overall. And what we are actually committed to is to reduce the carbon footprint of this bottle by a third. And that is across the total of the value chain, even the value chain which we are not directly owning. So really from the grassroots, from the sugar, actually to the customer. And that's a strong commitment. It's actually comparing the 2020 um, commitment to the 2007 base. But obviously, innovation takes many forms. And again, take this bottle. So if you look at this bottle, and some of you might have noticed, we've reduced the height of the closure, and that's a big technological <coughs> advancement, um, and reduced with that, actually, the plastic by 2,000 tons across our supply chain. Additionally, we've taken, actually, on the multi-packs, which we serve, the cardboard away, which is, again, reducing the total amount of cardboard by 3,000 tons. And one of the key elements is we were a follower on packaging in the past. And we've seen, actually, if we want to lead the industry, we need to be a leader in packaging. And that's where we are working very hard and putting a lot of effort together with our suppliers to reduce, actually, the total plastic in our bottle to the lightest bottle in the Coke world. And that is um, a very strong commitment because we're going to the edges of process capabilities, actually, there. So, significantly, actually, as well, by summer, this bottle will actually contain 25% of recycling content, and 22.5% will be coming from plant sources. So, plastic, which is made from plant sources. And additionally, and this is together with the launch of the uh, Continuum Recycling Joint Venture up in Lincolnshire, we will take the 20 million clear bottles which will be consumed across the Olympic venues, ship it to our um, recycling center, turn these bottles 
into pellets, so small granules, which will be then shipped over to our manufacturing site in Wakefield, where it will be processed into bottles and filled back into coke. And it's really keeping the supply chain very close at our heart and keeping actually the plastic within GB. And I think this is one of our key commitments which we are making. So this is really just giving you a snapshot of how innovation works. And I'm only giving you a snapshot on two areas, uh, which is obviously productivity and sustainability. But for us, being a leading 21st century manufacturing leader is also about innovation in customer service. Be very close to our customers and understand in manufacturing what drives our customers, preempt actually what's coming, as well as innovating with our people. And I think this is what our business is built on. It's innovating with our people and motivate our people day by day to actually be the innovator. So in summary, that's what we are doing as a um, business within Coca-Cola Enterprises to really be a leading 21st century manufacturing. Okay, thanks a lot. Do you want to go, Nigel? Wow, how do you follow that? So I'm Nigel Whitehead and I am privileged to work for an organisation that produces some of the most complex products conceived and built by human beings anywhere on the planet. It's a matter of public record that individual products produced by our company in the UK can have an individual unit cost of the best part of a billion pounds. So somewhat different from the fractions of pennies that it takes to produce the, uh, the lid on the, on the Coke bottle. But nonetheless, many of the same themes. Uh, I work in a team uh, that has a, a gross value add per employee 85% above the national average. And I've grown up in a manufacturing sector, firstly with Rolls-Royce and then with BA Systems. In fact, 32 years in total from the beginning of my apprenticeship to uh, where I am today, uh, which has exposed me to some of the uh, greatest themes in engineering and manufacturing. And therefore, I find it quite frustrating that in some way the UK has lost its way a little in terms of uh, the way it thinks about manufacturing. The truth is that we are the ninth biggest manufacturer in the world in, uh, in the UK. The, the UK uh, manufacturing base employs some 2.5 million people. 11% uh, of the gross value add, half of the country's exports, and 72% of the R&D that's done in the UK supports that manufacturing ambition. And yet, somehow, if you ask the British public, they think we don't manufacture anything anymore, which is a bit of a shame, and there's an image issue that uh, I think we have to look at. And no doubt we'll, uh, we'll develop uh, that as part of the theme this morning. Uh, what I would say is that as an engineer, uh, I recognise that engineering companies decide to manufacture. And we decide to manufacture on the basis that we want to control, at least influence, the things that affect our proposition to the marketplace. So I will consciously have a, a make and a buy decision relating to my products. I'll decide what I make and I'll decide what I ask others to make. And just so you're aware, about 70% of what is made by our company is actually made by our suppliers. In the UK we have 7,500 suppliers, 2,500 of those are SMEs. But I put my arms around the things that give me competitive advantage uh, in terms of the product performance, the product safety, the cost of the offering and the schedule. Those are essentially my offerings to the marketplace. Uh, the, uh, my customer, who will actually stand on the stage later today, uh, wants me to be able to underpin the, the price, the schedule, the performance and the safety of my product. So I put my arms around the things that allow me to do that and I make a choice about what I manufacture to do that. And we can explore that a bit as, uh, as we go through the day. Uh, I also, because I have a very long-term view of this market, 
our products, for example, um, we have a, a product plan for the nuclear submarines business, which has my team say to me this week, um, what will I be doing in September 2034, because the last of the successor submarines is due to be delivered in August 2034, what will we be doing after that? And that's a reasonable question for them to ask. But it does give me a fantastic framework <coughs> in which to plan my resources. I can't just go to the bus stop and find the next project manager for the Stuart Submarine Programme or the chief engineer for the Typhoon Aircraft Programme. I have to breed these people. I have to select them from school or select them from university and have a 20-year horizon in terms of the training and development we give those individuals so they can produce the most complex products in the world and those which today haven't even been conceived. Later on today, you're going to meet one of our former apprentices and she will, no doubt, be making products in 20 years' time, which we haven't even conceived today, but she's training for that now. So examine her mindset when, uh, when you see her today. Very, very open mindset in terms of absorbing all the things that contextually are important. So as an organisation, uh, we are interested in, BA Systems is interested in the environment that government sets in terms of education, infrastructure, tax regimes, encouragement for R&D and so on, encourages uh, the way that the whole supply base operates and works and allows us, therefore, to generate exploitable intellectual property in the UK. I'm interested in the whole skills agenda in the UK uh, and uh, personally involved in developing the vocational skills agenda in the UK because if I don't do that, then we don't have the basis for our future manufacturing ambition. Those are some of the signposts that I want to give for the uh, forthcoming uh, okay. discussion. Great, yeah. thank you. Okay. Sally? Hi, thank you for having me here today. Um, I'm here representing small manufacturers and the creative businesses. Um, I'm going to read some notes I made last night as there's some key points I do want to get across and my infant daughter is currently leaving me a little bit sleep deprived, so bear with me while I read this. Um, as my background and experience in manufacturing <coughs> is from small-scale, high-craft perspective, um, the brands I work with do not tend to be global ones, but micros and SMEs, and the same goes for the manufacturers that I work with. The brands that do trade overseas tend to focus on key fashion areas like New York, Paris and Milan, or places with an appetite for British design like Japan and Hong Kong. To give you a brief idea, 21st century manufacturing and jewellery seems to be part 21st century and part 19th. Many things are still made by hand by individuals all over the country, either in jewellery hubs such as Hatton Garden or the Birmingham Jewellery Quarter, or scattered up and down the UK. Technology has finally started to make its way into creative manufacturing, with CAD rapid prototyping and other technical innovations becoming more readily available. But generally, production is still a collaborative effort, with many companies specialising in certain aspects of production, such as stone setting or polishing. Unfortunately, the last 15 years has seen a significant decline in manufacturing, with many designers turning to emerging markets to have their work produced. However, with an increase in prices, difficulties with communication and unreliable delivery schedules, businesses are starting to see the benefits of local production. In fashion, for example, over half of the designers at London Fashion Week are producing at least part of their collections in the UK again. Many of my clients are wanting to return their production to the UK and are desperate to find the manufacturers that can produce in the quality and quantities that they need. Jewellery manufacturing is facing a challenge because it is naturally developed through a skilled craftsman passing on their knowledge to apprentices. This only results in a very isolated and fixed way of working, which has prevented many from seeking to have a presence outside Hatton Garden, let alone trying to be a national or global <coughs> player. As a small creative business and having worked with many other creative micros and SMEs over the years, I've found it difficult to find manufacturers that can work flexibly on small numbers of items. 
In my experience, designers also have a very bleak view of UK manufacturers' investment in equipment and few manufacturers, in fact, express an interest in, in investing the equipment specifically needed for the small volume runs that typify high-end production, usually citing expense as a barrier to this investment. Paradoxically, better equipment could bolster designers' confidence in UK manufacturers, and for some, rental schemes or shared access to machinery could offer a solution and would also encourage a clustering of manufacturers and sharing of ideas. People are also less willing to take time away from their production to train apprentices, but the industry needs young blood to help drive it in the direction of its counterparts in Europe who are embracing new techniques and leaving us behind. Whilst apprenticeship schemes have been set up to help buck this trend, the graduates from those programmes are often still lacking in the basic skills needed by businesses to enable them to just get on with the job. In spite of this gloomy state of affairs, there are real opportunities with high-end manufacturing. Manufacturers that can adapt to the changing requirements of their client base, who can help with the development <coughs> process and easily interpret designs, would not be lacking in customers. We also need to encourage consumers to move away from mass consumption of throwaway fashion and other goods and look at a more sustainable future that focuses on quality items that are built to last. Continuing to consume at our current rates is not sustainable either for business or for the planet itself. A focus on championing local quality goods can help us rethink our value systems and start to appreciate quality over quantity. The best place Britain can be within creative manufacturing is leading high-end production and mass customisation creating a setup that enables and encourages designers to develop new and innovative ideas in an environment that means small manufacturers can realise those designs in an affordable and time-efficient way. Okay, thank you. Okay. Um, as a licensed academic being asked to talk about 21st century anything, uh, <laughs> it's like a dream job. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I've had uh, speak about certain things and I'll uh, underscore them with uh, sort of a four point uh, view. So for me, uh, the four points are brand, capability, process, and finance. So uh, number one, brand. Uh, I think Cadbury is a good example where there is a valuable brand, but then it's bought uh, on the cheap uh, because people don't understand the value of the brand. Um, but I, a few months ago, I did a focus group of supply chain directors in the greater London area. And one of the things that emerged is when we talk about 21st century manufacturing is we start talking about global brands, but local manufacturing. So that means, it, and Coca-Cola is a very good example, and uh, DAE also does things outside. Uh, so when we talk about 21st century manufacturing, we shouldn't dissociate manufacturing from the brand itself. And what does brand mean? Because brand means people will buy that product they'll buy the product because a Jaguar is a British car, no matter who owns it, and that will always remain. So we have to think about a brand. Second is capability. Um, a few months ago, some small uh, entrepreneur brought me a part. It was some kind of a fairly complex nut and bolt, let me just say, very complex nut and bolt, and they were going to sell it to uh, EADS. Uh, for, for Airbus, and uh, I asked him where he got it made because it was very complicated. Uh, one of my my first degree was mechanical engineering, so I see a part I immediately think, oh my God, this is really difficult to manufacture. And he said it was done by a small manufacturer uh, in London, and the way it was done is because it was so difficult to machine and all that, so they have basically used powdered metal, compressed it into the shape needed, which is called sintering, and. Uh, 
those kind of capabilities are already here, so why not use uh, those capabilities to advantage? And it was ironic, the same day I heard a program on BBC uh, Radio 4, where somebody said, oh, there's no point investing in manufacturing in Britain because it's all got to be made in China anyway, and everybody knows it, so why are we bothering? So, but there is this issue of capability. Not everybody everywhere in the world has the same capability, even if they can, uh, the labor cost is cheaper. Uh, because of my second job now as uh, an for the business, I work, uh, I go and visit manufacturing companies. And you can see that in a country like India with 1.2 billion people, there are many machines that are idle because these are very basic skills, but they don't have the labor with the basic skills. So capability is uh, quite important. Um, and uh, Sally's also talked about the possibility of losing capabilities if they are not nurtured properly. So capabilities are not uh, somehow God-given or whatever. It's human beings create them, but human beings can lose them as well. Uh, third is a process. Uh, somebody, I forgot who it was. This was a company they had acquired, a British company. And then they said, oh, so, and then we brought the British to bring about the processes. Uh, so I, I realized uh, many times we think of things as bureaucracy and if you want to get a bulb change in your house, it has to be certified and, and if you have to change or uh, do anything with the gas, God forbid, then of course uh, it has all kinds of certifications come in. Uh, but there is a question of the knowledge of processes itself as a capability. And uh, Britain's done a very good job in the sense that the people who are acquiring British companies are not just acquiring plants or brand, but they're also require, uh, also getting process capability. How do you go about doing things in a certain way? And um, people may have forgotten, but the notion of process started from this country uh, when it comes to manufacturing processes. So, so that's how the Industrial Revolution got started. And uh, so, so when we think about 21st century manufacturing and what competitive advantage UK companies might have over non-UK companies, we shouldn't forget the foreman uh, in a company who's probably losing his or her job, but has certain skills that are unique uh, anywhere in the world. The third thing, finance. Um, well, it's banks. You can't, you can't live with them and you can't live without them. Uh, and uh, especially if you're an SME uh, like Sally's firm. But um, this was back in 2007. I think I was in some panel which had to uh, comment on the Gordon Brown administration's very nascent manufacturing policy. It was a two-page document. It was a closed room discussion what it uh, meant. And that time I said, no, oh, you haven't said anything about the city uh, because in any supply chain, as Roman will talk, you have to look at not just the manufacturing flows or the information flows, but you also have to look at the cash flows. How is money flowing in to keep, uh, which is Sally's constraint as well as an SME. How does money flow in the supply chain because that's what keeps everything flowing. And I said there's nothing in this manufacturing policy talking about money. And uh, people hadn't even thought about connecting the city with manufacturing. But a few months later, it wasn't my doing, but uh, of course the banks uh, then really flogged up the system and brought the point to bear that uh, money is what keeps everything going. So we have to think about how banks 
or other financial institutions, if banks cannot do it, can play an important role in 21st century supply chains. And uh, out of that experience, I myself started a degree, a master's degree in supply chain and finance at CAS, um, uh, City University London, because I knew for 21st century, I need to prepare my students who can understand money uh, as part of the 21st manufacturing uh, context. So, so those four ideas, uh, brand, capability, process, and finance. All right, well, thank you all very much. I think we'll open up for some questions now. So, has anybody got anything to ask? Okay, yes, over there. Regarding the uh, sustainability uh, program you have, and recycling in particular, um, how much is coming back to you, and what lessons are you learning about how to encourage everything to be returned as, as required, because you have that goal of complete recycling? I think this is a great question, actually. Um, if, I, if I start with the second part of the question, how do, we, how do we ensure and encourage, actually, people to collect and recycle? Um, I think this is something where we are really pushing hard and working together with the government as well as to encourage actually more c one consistent curbside recycling program because that's where we feel is actually a key to ensure that we have good materials with the right quantity of materials kept in the UK. And that's key. If, if you have not the quantity, neither the quality, or one or the other, you would struggle actually to have the right material to be reprocessed um, Within, um, within a recycling plant. So this is something we're working closely actually with the government on that. Obviously this is not a one year journey as you can imagine um, because of the nature of the history of having so many different curbside recycling, curbside collection system across the UK. Um, I'm in a luxurious position having my background as you might hear being from Germany, there is curbside collection and very good recycling rates actually with there. So there is way more recycling being encouraged in, in that environment. Now, um, we've worked hard actually with our um, joint venture to secure actually the material with a good quality um, already so that we are able to operate actually with our joint venture. But I can ensure you this is hard work. This is very hard work and as such I think it's also encouraging actually the wider groups and we're doing this with recycling events we're putting actually um, in big festivals our recycling containers up and also actually myself as well as colleagues are working on a um, voluntary base actually to do recycling at those events. And I think that's what we would encourage actually all of us to do more of to be fair. I mean, Nigel, much recycling go on in at BAE? Well, it's a really interesting question when you say that with a slight smirk. Uh, <laughs> because you would, you would expect me to say, oh, no, not really, not really for us. But it's, it's a journey we're very much uh, established on and it's something we're very proud of. Uh, so whether it's to save the planet or it's just the basic economics, we are all compelled to use less materials, mm. uh, have less waste in our processes, uh, build products which are more easily sustained and will do no damage uh, to the environment that, uh, that uh, can be avoided. Uh, and uh, in the process of that, all the factory uh, elements we have, running those in a, in a cost-effective way. I have a factory in the northwest which has an annual electricity bill of £7 million a year. And uh, we're all compelled to try and reduce that electricity bill. So just the thought process of how you, how re how re you reduce that bill is fundamental to making the business effective mm. and efficient. In terms of the products, even the simple act of 
uh, building the product straight, I mean, it sounds like a, an obvious thing to say, but we, we do laser alignment of, for example, Eurofighter Typhoon aircraft, so that uh, along the center line of the aircraft there's no deviation, no me measurable deviation. Uh, previous generations of aircraft, and indeed some of the airliners you fly around in, will have appreciable bow in the fuselage, it looks like a banana rather than a, a proper cylinder, uh, and that will cause drag in the aircraft and will cause extra fuel usage. So just by building a Typhoon straight, we save about 3% of the fuel usage through its life, which is about 300 tonnes of fuel per aircraft in a 6,000 hour life of the aircraft. And that has a contribution in terms of reducing fuel costs for the customer and also the, uh, the environmental impact. So there's all sorts of considerations, mainly around effective and efficient use of materials, and I, I could talk for an hour on that subject. Okay, very good. Shall we go for another question? Yes. So we are, um, our portfolio actually contains glass bottles which are mainly sold in restaurants and that's about choice and um, convenience. If I, if I answer your question first of all on the choice and convenience then come back to the recycling aspect or the environmentally friendly aspect. Um, the, the choice is clear, the consumer choice and I'm including a lot of people around is more towards plastic. Very clearly it can't break, it's safe and it's very easy to handle, it's light. Versus glass, which is more heavy, which can break easily, you can cut yourself when you're on the go. And this is the main reason why consumers choose the PET bottles. Um, in a restaurant environment or in a, in, a, in a different environment, this is about more a status symbol of having a glass bottle, the feel of it, the touch of it, when it's cold, when it's slightly condensating. I love it, honestly, I love it. Uh, <laughs> uh, um, now, when I come on to the environmentally friendliness, there are two things. There's breakage, obviously, on glass, which you won't recover, as well as the production process of glass is highly energy-consuming as well, because you've got to melt the glass, and then you've got to bring it back to recycling, and then reproduce it. Now, that's all happening. If you compare both streams, there's not a lot in them, honestly. If you look at really the energy consumption in both processes, the whole of the um, supply chain, and depending on which study you believe, you might find arguments actually for each, for each of them. And it depends a lot actually on location, it, on collection points, how many you have, how much material is in the market. So there are several studies across Europe existing which tell you different stories. So we, we keep actually on choice and there's not a lot in between as well. Okay, any questions for either Sally or, or Mohan now? Um, yeah, could you introduce yourself before, yeah, before you ask? Thank you. Thanks. Di Burton, Cicada Communications. Question for the professor. Satish Kumar said it's no good turning out um, e you know, people with economic degrees. They need to learn about ecology as well. Do you feel that people you know, coming out and running manufacturing industries need both the economics degrees as well as the degrees in ecology and the environment? Okay, I'll answer the question from my vantage point. Uh, in, in my degree, for instance, I teach about different stakeholders, and one of the stakeholders is the environment. Not environment as in the abstract, but the environment as representing future generations. So you're still dealing with people. You have suppliers, you have uh, banks, you have uh, customers. Those are important stakeholders, as are shareholders, of course. 
but you also have your progeny, your uh, future grandchildren or great-grandchildren. If we think about that, then uh, we can really talk about that in economic terms. Um, is it necessary to talk about ecology? I think it's important to talk about ecology, but can the economics part handle it? I think the economics part can handle it well enough. Okay, very good. Any more questions? Yes, uh, over there. Um, just wait for the mic, please. Uh, Neil Collins, a question for Sally. What do you think the government, you, I thought you put the problem extremely well. What do you think the government could do to help other than get out of the way? <laughs> um, I think there needs to be more support for manufacturers, the small ones, to be able to sort of get together and talk and collaborate and share. Um, I think that talking to people actually grassroots in the industries would be really helpful. People that I speak to that say, no, I don't want to, I don't want to get any bigger, I don't want people to know where I am, I don't, I don't want to try new technology. And the other big thing is I don't want to take on apprentices because it takes too much time to train them. They don't know what they're doing when they come in. It costs me more money to help someone than it does to actually do anything to do with the business. Um, personally, from, from my experience, apprenticeship schemes that actually didn't focus on level one, level two, level three, that were at degree level, that were at postgraduate level, that enabled the person coming in to, to provide a real value to those businesses would be really, really helpful. Um, most people, most manufacturers I know would happily take someone on if they thought it wasn't going to detract from their day-to-day -day operations. Um, people that can come in and talk coherently about new business directions, new ideas, embracing social media, embracing technologies. Um, when I go in and talk to manufacturers, a lot of the time, they, they're still doing sort of all of their bookkeeping by hand because they don't want to use a computer, they can't send an email, and they don't want to be lectured at on how to do that. But if someone could come in, understand the, the general operation, and actually develop systems that work with their program, their way of working, that would actually help them a lot. I mean, that's what I do do with some businesses. Um, but yeah, apprentices that can actually do the job, hit the ground running, is, is really crucial, I think, if we're to adopt the technologies that other, other countries are using, particularly on a small scale. Okay, I mean, maybe we could ask sort of about that sort of thing, skills it, and so on it, as well. If, if I may, yeah. um, as well as my day job with BE Systems, I have a, a role as a commissioner in the UK Commission for Employment and Skills. It's essentially a think tank organisation that exists as part of the government structure, reports to two ministers in biz and in uh, a department uh, for uh, um, uh, work pensions. Uh, and in essence, uh, my role in that group is to develop the vocational skills agenda in the UK. Uh, we're in a country today where only 6% of the people enter the workplace through apprenticeships and only 8% of companies have apprenticeship schemes and yet we have uh, a, a broadening divide uh, which has resulted in uh, about a, a million people between the age of 16 and 24 who are unemployed and face the, uh, the real prospect of not being able to get onto the, onto the work ladder early in their, in, their, in their lives. So we have something of a crisis in the UK and I personally believe that uh, by working uh, with the companies that don't have apprenticeship schemes today and by working uh, with people who could potentially enter such schemes, we can do a lot to bridge that particular divide. And if I look at uh, what, for example, this government has done uh, most recently, they've launched a £250 million fund, which is a considerable amount of money, 
aimed at encouraging the employers to express how they would actually start just the sort of apprenticeship schemes that, uh, that Sally has mentioned. Uh, where smaller companies can potentially work with larger companies, so for example a company like BA Systems could train more apprentices than it needs just for BA Systems, but train for the supply base as well, with the view that that makes our supply base stronger, but also the smaller companies that we work with would benefit from such schemes. So. Uh, the government is encouraging uh, a new thought, new process and innovation in that area to try and get employers to think about it in that way. Interestingly, when we've, uh, we've researched this, in fact we've talked to 87,000 companies, what they say is that their experience of working with young people is actually very positive, that they have uh, the sorts of attitudes, the sorts of educational background that actually allows them to be a success in the workplace. And it's different from the perception that has been pushed over the last half decade or so, that in some way there's a big divide and education systems isn't doing what it needs. But we can do more in terms of work experience and in pre-apprenticeships to get people into a position where they can hit the ground uh, running in, in a bit more effective way. But when they do, the universal experience seems to be a positive one on the part of employers who run such schemes. Okay. Um, Roman, you must see quite a sort of difference coming from Germany and, and now working here in terms of manufacturing, engineering apprenticeships and so on. Where do you think Germany's got it right and, and we've got it wrong? I think um, right and wrong is a tough word, obviously, in that, in that context. <laughs> um, if you take Germany, and I think the main difference to GB has been it always stuck to the grounds of manufacturing in bad times and in good times. Mm. And there were bad times in Germany, definitely. But very clearly, it never, it never focused on anything else than really making manufacturing and engineering attractive. And if I look at the educational systems in Germany, yes, it is sexy actually to, to study engineering. It is sexy to study in manufacturing. When I look at GB, it's like it's dragging people actually into it and, and putting them into, well, it's not anymore the gruffy environment than it was during industrialization. It is actually a good place to work. It's fun to work. But people need to get that experience. And I think it takes time to create a culture that manufacturing is really attractive, actually, in this market. And that's something where um, I'm absolutely committed. And I think having seen how well it works in Germany, also with the apprenticeship schemes, this all takes time. Um, having that said, I think there's a dual responsibility, A, from the government to ensure that the skills are delivered, that we have high-quality programs actually at our universities, which enable that, which also have an international reputation, because I'm a strong believer that you will get good students on an international base actually attracting into GB as well if you have the right programs, like we see in the business programs, because there are a lot of international students coming to London studying business. And the second one is, and that's the accountability clearly for us as the industry, is attracting young people and showing them what kind of good environment it is to be in manufacturing and what kind of excitement it can cause. We're doing a lot of investment in our education centers, which basically are attached to each of the sites, running 20,000 young people actually through it every year, and also running a business challenge, um, which is actually attracting 14 to 15-year-olds who create actually their business proposals and that's 60,000 students per annum, which is something we're really, really keen on doing more of. So that's, that's something where I think we have a dual responsibility between government and industry. Okay, <clears throat> I'll give the example of India because uh, the Indian government recently came out with the national <laughs> manufacturing policy 
just like the Gordon Brown administration had been doing and Obama administration is trying to do in the US. And it wasn't really the government that led it. It was really the large uh, industry heads who got together and pushed the government into acting a certain way. So rather than talk about government, I think we should talk about what role can the large companies play. And I'm talking to some large IT companies about creating uh, cloud-based computing, um, uh, accounting, and ERP solutions for small and medium enterprises. So just like Sally talked about Hatton Gardens in India, in India also, there are many uh, clusters of small, medium enterprises who don't have the basic skills. Well, having computer skills and a computer person is very expensive, but now with cloud-based computing, you can create uh, very cheap solutions. Uh, so, so again, it's the large companies who can lead and who can do things uh, rather than the government. Okay, I think we'll take another question. There's a guy in a white shirt there who's been waiting a while. Well, uh, James Woodhouse, I'm a professor of forecasting and innovation at De Montfort University. I want to congratulate Editorial Intelligence and its partners here for um, making supply chain management sexy. That, that, that's, that's really new in my experience. But uh, I, I think it's also great to hear from a jeweler and some engineers and, uh, and all of that. We hear it too infrequently. But what I'm hearing, ladies and gentlemen, is apart from the discussion on skills, which I think is... Uh, commendable, and we do need more apprenticeships in this country. The direction which you seem to be heading is not mentioning much about growth, which I thought was what we were about, what this country needs, not mentioning much about R&D, and uh, where it's heading, I think, is where um, Obama is headed, which is to combine the promise of green jobs, uh, green growth, with a revival of um, what Eisenhower called the military-industrial complex. If you look at Obama's State of the Union speech, it's all about how the Navy is going to uh, being, uh, procure, go about procuring all kinds of green technologies and things like that. And that's something where Germany has a very interesting record because it's a very green army in Germany. They've, when they're shooting you up with a tank, they've got a nice converter at the back in the exhaust to make sure that they do it in a very green way. Um, <laughs> Is that really where you want British growth to grow, uh, everyone? Do you agree with Sally, who wants to make jewellery, which I fully defend, and then tells people to reduce their consumption, not go around throwing away? I don't know whether you do throw away jewellery, Sally, but perhaps you'd throw a bit in my direction. Um, you know, because is, is, uh, uh, if you want growth, then you can't go around telling people to lower their consumption. You can't hope for green jobs. There are very few green jobs in the US. If you look at the numbers, they're mainly for ex-convicts up in lofts. Um, and the second thing is, you're not going to get much growth from the defense sector right now, whatever you might think, because as, as Nigel will confirm, it's been cut back a whole lot. So I want to hear about mainstream manufacturing and what plans you have to get the government to set the political conditions where people believe that manufacturing has a future and that people want to see risks taken with intensive R&D and uh, a go-getter attitude to manufacturing rather than apologizing for its carbon footprint. I just took a look at Google. Okay, sort of, there's, uh, a million, yeah, there's a million definitions of carbon footprint. If it's really a tenable concept, why are there a million definitions of that way to go forward? Okay, so I mean, you know, is there a sort of incompatibility then between green and growth? 
Can I? I oh, think sorry, so. Sally, do you want to go in first? <laughs> Just to answer, in terms of moving away from a mass consumerist society, I mean, from, from the point of view of manufacturing of British craft and British sort of fashion and design, we do have to move away from the Chinese mass manufactured stuff that's coming into Topshop and places like that in order for those small businesses to be able to continue to make. At the moment, you know, there is a, a separate sort of counter industry that's grown up in Hatton Garden, particularly repairing cheap mass imports. So in that sense, there is some growth around there. But if, if you want to actually um, help businesses that are manufacturing in, in Hatton Garden, in London, the small pattern cutters, the small machinists, the people like that. We have to encourage people to buy British stuff rather than buy 100 t-shirts from Primark that are made God knows where and are chucked away next week. I mean, that's what I mean about moving away from the consumer society. It's the things that you want to buy. They have to be made here and justify the cost because of the raised cost of living here. Okay, Roman. I think it's, it's an interesting question, actually, because one doesn't go without the other. And at the end of the day, you can only grow if you have consumers actually have your choice. You need to be the preferred choice of your consumers in our business. And one of the key elements, and we did an extensive study really in asking our stakeholders, stakeholders meaning consumers, our board, but also our internal people. And there's a, a multi-dimensional aspect really around sustainability. One is, you won't get growth if you're not green. A, it gives you productivity. It's not, not only something which is nice to have, it gives you productivity as well, because it um, actually reduces the exposure to some of the um, external volatility on commodities, as well as it gives you a competitive advantage in the market. Because, let's face it, I mean, we have limited amount of resources across the globe. I think that is well acknowledged. And if we are not working actually with the resources more carefully, we'll be actually hemorrhaging ourselves at the end of the day. Okay. And as such, I think it's Sorry. well acknowledged. Yeah. It's well acknowledged actually that for us growth, and one key aspect of growth and supporting the growth is being green. Okay, do you want to just quickly go in? I feel I must. Um, if, tell us about your hybrid tanks. Well, <laughs> if, 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 I, uh, if, if I look at the question in its broadest sense, which is uh, how I'm compelled to see it, uh, there is a worldwide economic battle going on, and there will be winners and losers in that battle. And I believe that the engineering manufacturing element of the contribution to the economy will be one of the decisive factors in the ability for the UK to uh, do well in that particular economic battle. So I come at it from the point of view that uh, it is vital that the UK sets up uh, an environment and infrastructure that enables the continuing development of exploitable intellectual property which has been generated in the UK uh, and uh, that if it fails to do that then simply engineering and manufacturing will go elsewhere and the economic battle will be won by somebody else. So uh, the initiatives around uh, setting up R&D tax credits, uh, the patent box approach, and encouraging uh, innovation not just within the uh, SMEs but also within the large companies is an essential part of the fabric of what will make Britain a success in the future. Uh, from that perspective, I think we all have a responsibility to make sure that we see it that way and make long-term investments to make sure that we can, uh, we can contribute to that battle. I see that going on in aerospace, I see it going on in defence, I see it also going on in the uh, burgeoning security market uh, where the UK has an advantage by virtue of the way it's approached these things in the past and we are able uh, now to apply engineering effort to provide 
cybersecurity and other um, security-related offerings uh, on a worldwide basis. So uh, from that perspective, there is growth there based on uh, the innovation and skills that exist within a highly skilled UK workforce. If we give up on that concept, then we will lose that economic battle. It won't be digital, it won't be overnight, but over a period of half a decade or a decade, we will find that we suddenly slip down the league table and we will be scratching our heads wondering why. It will be because we haven't concentrated on that generation of intellectual property. Okay, John, let's come in very yeah, quickly. Just we'll... quickly. Actually, all the four points I made are about growth, or rather removing the impediments to growth, uh, using British brands to grow globally. So that was the brand one. Uh, unique capabilities, because now you're competing in a global marketplace. If those unique capabilities are left to wither, uh, as um, Nigel pointed out, then you lose them forever. But if they're allowed to grow, then you're competing and su competing successfully in the global marketplace. Uh, and then process capability I mentioned. Again, this is somewhere where Britain started process, the notion of process, and uh, the capabilities are very much still there, but maybe not for long unless, uh, come. So, which is why many Indian companies are acquiring British companies, because they're not just buying the brand, they're also buying process. Uh, which, which they badly need. And intellectual property for sure, but some intellectual property is not based on law. It's, it's this notion of process which is hard to patent. Uh, uh, and, and then the banks. Banks have been a big uh, detriment to, or finance has been a big detriment to, to growth of British companies last two, three years, and it's going to remain like that unless uh, we come up with uh, different ways of financing. Okay, I'm going to take a few questions now. So if you keep them quite brief, and then we'll put them to the panel. There's three on this side of the room. So we should start with this gentleman in the aisle first. Uh, Nico McDonald, I'm co-author of a manifesto called Big Potatoes, which is the London Manifesto for Innovation. Um, I've been working in the digital sector since the late 80s in publishing and media, and I'm interested in the role that digital and networks have in the future of manufacturing, um, partly around tools for creating and designing things, partly around collaboration and process, as Man Mahan's been talking about, uh, and probably more broadly than you've been talking about with ERP systems and uh, accounting and so on. That seems to be, has to be a foundation for 21st century manufacturing. And implicit in that is the idea of services and the idea of manual services, which is not a particularly new idea, uh, and one which in aerospace particularly has been uh, very celebrated in your former company, Nigel Rolls-Royce, uh, which makes most of its money from servicing, not making anymore. Uh, and it seems to me we need to be thinking about services as well uh, as a sort of continuum from manufacturing, because in the digital age, almost nothing is a product on its own, if you like. And the final question is the, is the question of design, which is much heralded even by the Chancellor in his last budget, if not the current one and what role design plays in a modern manufacturing economy. I think it's probably overhyped, but it's also not that well understood. And what role does design play? Implicit in Sally's business, I guess. Uh, sort of in Nigel's business. Uh, Roman, yes, in a kind of cultural way in your business, but maybe in more profound ways as well. So networks, digital, process, services, and design. That's not too big a question. Uh, well, we'll take some more. Dare we take some more? Keep it to one question, please. Uh, um, hello, my name's Paul Reeves. I'm from uh, Dassault Systems Solidworks. Um, originally, I studied aeronautics, so I kind of got an engineering background. Uh, this se session's called Techniques and Technologies, and just on the technologies point, um, I wonder if the panel have any opinions on the idea that given that most new technologies are, not all, but most 
new technologies when they're developed are inherently wasteful and inefficient is the idea Producing kind of world-changing technologies, actually <coughs> inhibiting that kind of um, development. Okay, and then could you pass the mic next to you, then? Thanks. Hello, m my name is Mark Needham, and I've got a question for all the panel. Really, I think we all know that the only way to make uh, manufacturing sexy to young people is to produce a successful TV show about it. <laughs> it's worked for cooking, it's worked for venture capitalists, it's even worked for estate agents, and it's certainly worked for Simon Cowell. So what, how would the panel illustrate the joys of manufacturing in a game show? Okay, well I think what I'll do is put those other questions to the panel first. So we were talking about the role of digital um, whether services have some sort of role to play in manufacturing, uh, the role of design and how important it really is, and whether new technology might or, or might not be too wasteful. So pick up on any of those points, and I think we'll save the game show question for last. So, uh, Roman, do you want to pick up on, on any of those? those yeah, I, I start with the di digital one, because we just had uh, a couple of weeks ago a leadership meeting where we exactly discussing that role of digital in the future of supply chain as well as a total business. I think it's pretty, pretty obvious in our sales environment that digital becomes a bigger role, especially social media, there are Coke networks, Coke Facebooks um, around. But I want to emphasize on what role it can play in supply chain. And I think whilst we are developing what role it is, very clearly um, what we see is we have talents and new generations coming in, Generation Y, which without those tools, you're not an attractive employer. So if, if you don't do actually anything on a social media front, with chatting or anything else, um, you're not anymore an attractive employer. So um, one is attracting talent. The other one is speed of execution and operational excellence, as we call it, sharing best practices quickly across our sites and really tapping into um, engineering intelligence via it. So we are, have launched actually a chatter network, basically social media, which is focused on that. And um, we, we, we have to work our way through because this is new to us from a um, big environment and big company culture. But we see the value of digital going forward, not only from the pure supply chain end to end, which clearly is one focus, focus in getting um, the interfaces shorter, leaner and slicker, but also from a cultural perspective of um, well, uh, networking in order to get faster with ideas and resolving issues. Okay, I'm going to bring Sally in. I'm conscious that we're running quite low on time, so if you could just quite quickly uh, address one of those points. Okay, um, in terms of sort of the digital area again, I mean, obviously with the designers and the sort of the younger, newer generations of people, they are embracing the Facebook page, Etsy, lots of different social interactions. They're all planning on um, using their, like me, iPads to do their planning and everything, and the, the manufacturers are very much left behind. So I think there's a very key role for, um, for digital to play in helping bring the, sort of the older manufacturers into the 21st century and getting them engaging with the designers, being able to, for example, if, you, if you're manufacturing overseas, you can draw something in CAD, you can email it to someone in Thailand, they can send you the drawing back, you can check it, and it'll be with you in a few weeks. Now, there are only very few businesses doing that in the UK, and that's something that we need to be definitely looking at in terms of in, in introducing digital into the sort of manufacturing, particularly for the small businesses. 
Uh, just a quick one. Uh, that uh, the, If you look at the way Chinese manufacturers, contract manufacturers are going in electronics industry, they really started to focus on services because that's where they see their growth. And if you look at IBM, which was and to some extent still is a large manufacturer, uh, their percentages of income became mostly services uh, and more than the UK economy. So services will always be dominant. Uh, but it's the manufacturing core that makes those services possible. I mean, you must sort of have to do lots of services as, as well. Uh, we do, and uh, to the point about the, uh, the digital uh, thread, um, in fact, we use the, uh, the Dassault system CATIA uh, for our, our design work, in particular on the, on the aircraft side. Um, from the conceptual stage all the way through the uh, design definition, uh, directly feeding the uh, computer-aided manufacturing processes, uh, we have that digital thread going all the way through. Uh, Typhoon was the first aircraft to do that, so that was essentially uh, about a decade and a half ago. All subsequent products have been done that way. But the critical issue is that it then feeds the through-life process. So we envisage a service life of 30, 40, 50 years for some of our products. And having that digital definition of the product, meticulous digital records of every component that's been built that allows you to maintain the airworthiness records, allows you to update and upgrade the systems, is absolutely the fundamental tenet on which our business is based. So it wouldn't, it wouldn't exist today in the form it exists at the prices that, that we're able to, uh, to offer if it wasn't for that digital thread. So absolutely vital. And then just one point teeing you into the game show issue. Um, we were involved in making a program called How to Build a Nuclear Submarine, involved in Evan Davis's program Made in Britain. Uh, each of them had massive viewing figures. So How to Make a Nuclear Submarine, 3.2 million viewers during the World Cup, which um, notionally nobody would have watched it. 3.2 million viewers, big surprise for the BBC. Equally, Evan Davis's program made in Britain, over 2 million viewers for essentially a business program, he'd normally expect less than a million. And the message has got across to many uh, program makers that there's an appetite for it in the UK. I'd also offer the opinion that if Lord Sugar's program was called Dog Eat Dog Reality TV, nobody would even make a connection with apprenticeships. Okay, right. I'm going to ask you all to take your manufacturing hats off and put your television production hats on and ask if anyone has got a name for a game show. Well, I don't have a name, but I think it would take a format like the Generation Game. Right. Just getting a whole load of people in and trying to manufacture random things and just watching the comicness that generally unfolds when people are trying to make a new product behind the scenes is kind of actually what it looks like really a lot of the time. Okay, uh, Manufacturing Tycoon, and uh, the reason I give that oh, name is because my remit in India, but in the Indian School of Business, is precisely to make manufacturing sexy for MBA students because most MBA students almost all go into finance and marketing and they are now being, uh, uh, being hired by the best banks and Coca-Cola and P&G and so on. So, so what I'm doing there is I'm trying to sell the sector to the, manufacturer, to the MBA students saying it's the global manufacturing that attracts them. Not manufacturing, but global manufacturing. You, because you tell them, look at the most important people in the world. They are heads of global manufacturing companies. That one is sexy. So manufacturing tycoon is sexy. Manufacturing is not and is not going to become sexy. <laughs> Roman, so he, I think manufacturing is becoming sexy. I, I won't get away from that. <laughs> um, well, I, I'm, I'm all about applying best practices. And there is a, there's a series in Germany which is called The Show with a Mouse. Now, that's not a very attractive and sexy name, but I think sparkling that up actually with the X Factor, 
I think um, there might be a great combination actually in reapplying best practice and making it something better. And, and final word, Nigel. I would go for Apprenticeships the True Story, okay. which is actually yeah. about taking people with huge potential but no ability to mesh with the workplace, putting them through an apprenticeship scheme and then seeing them fly as individuals, seeing all that potential realised. There's no, no better feeling. Okay, thank you. I think we'll leave it there. Thanks a lot.